Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Purple, a sleep products company 20 years in the making, dedicated to giving you the best night's sleep of your life. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a little more about Purple and how they can help you rest a bit easier, even after being kept up all night by bone-chilling tales. Plus, they've got a special offer for those of you in our listening audience. Until then, go ahead and lock your doors and double-check beneath your bed. You never know what might come crawling out while I've got you distracted. (laughs) Stay tuned. This show is about to begin. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway?
<laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing three stories for you about four-dimensional fears, ghoulish games, and not-so-virtual reality. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. (laughs) Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of an author known only as The Hootax, about what happens when a video game designed to be realistic takes its mission a bit too seriously. Without further ado, I present to you the Cistellian Spectre. Back in May of 2010, my best friend Andy and I wanted to make a video game that we thought was going to change virtual reality gaming and the horror genre forever. We were both out of university, me with a degree in computer programming and him with digital art design. Both of us were avid gamers I think we played a bit of just about everything. Racing, JRPGs, MMOs, sports, you name it. We wanted to make a game unlike anything you could get coming from overseas. You could call it an ambitious goal for a couple of aspiring indie gamers, but both of us were ambitious guys. Andy was a big fan of horror, and was actually the first to come up with the idea We'd heard of the four-dimensional theaters that were being introduced in places like Korea and London, where you weren't just watching a movie, but feeling it and smelling it. If the movie was set in a pine forest, there were triggers that would release the scent of pine to the audience. Likewise, if the characters were standing on the windy deck of his ship, fans would start blowing to mimic the conditions of the movie in the theater. All of it was to create a more realistic, interactive experience for the viewer, and we thought it would be awesome to try to implement that with a 4D game. Obviously, we didn't have the manpower to make an entire game by ourselves. We were in a lot of debt because of school and wouldn't have been able to afford the virtual reality hardware in our wildest dreams. That, and we had no idea how to develop the technology we needed to create the 4D gaming experience. Throughout the following summer, we networked like crazy, pitching our ideas to different developers, both indie and big-time. There was interest, but the 4D concept was still very much in development, and no one was sure they wanted to invest time and resources in it without the assurance it was going to hit it off. I won't bore you with the details of how it happened, but we finally hit a breakthrough in September, when an independent company called Cistellian contacted us after our attempts to pitch the idea to them. They thought it had potential and were interested in onboarding us as writers and programmers. The company itself would take the rights for the game, of course, and there'd be a team that would make the final decisions during all stages of development. It was still more than we could have ever hoped for. There was a team of 150 people, a third of who were hardware developers, 
The controller was built into a padded, inclined chair with a minimalist headset that fits around the player's eyes and ears. The joystick and buttons could be swapped on the arms to accommodate if the player was left-handed or right-handed. Really high-tech, right? Where the money was really sunk was in the environmental simulators and the sensors and nodes that would be attached to the player's body to monitor their physical status. Like I said, the game was meant to be a horror game. We settled on the story of an unnamed character going into a haunted mansion to get rid of evil spirits and getting stalked by a demon. The most cliched plot and setting you could think of, but that was what we were going for. We wanted something that would easily be associated with fear. The idea was that the demon fed off fear and would find you more easily if you were afraid. First, it would scare and drive the character crazy, then it would kill him or her. The monitors attached to the player analyzed the physical signs that the player was afraid. Rapid heartbeat, dilated pupils, harsh breathing, clammy or sweaty skin, etc. And use that information to determine how aggressively the demon would act. You could think of it as a social experiment. You could see how well the person would stay calm under pressure. Theoretically, a completely calm person could make it through the entire game without much danger but the scares and the atmosphere wouldn't let you get through the first level without making you anxious. The real fun started once the demon came after you. We wanted it to keep it subtle. No jump scares that was cheating the player out of the experience. If you think about it, people with real paranormal experiences never report a demon breaking through a glass window or going for your throat. They report brushes against the skin a whispering in the ears, and a loud sound in the distance, even tingling or electrical sensations. Those were the kinds of things we created. We programmed the system to deliver those audio and sensory cues when the player reached a certain level of anxiety. The more scared you were, the more scares you received. At the beginning of the game, you might hear heavy breathing or footsteps behind you. You might even feel cold spots as you navigated the mansion. As you progressed and became tenser, you might feel a grip on your arm from a blood pressure-like cushion on the chair that tightened around the muscle, or a hiss directly in your ear along the feeling of the breath. It was elaborate and it took forever to produce, but when they hooked you in, it was amazing. I had the privilege of being the one to test it as it was being produced. They put me in the chair, turned off all the lights, and would play the game through the headset as well as project the images that you were seeing onto a wall so that the team could see it too. The graphics were realistic. They got the rooms of the mansion down to the last detail. About a year and a half after the sensors were developed and implemented into the system, we started looking for beta testers. We started advertising in magazines and message boards for people to come in blind and play the game, giving any criticism or reporting any glitches they experienced. The majority of the feedback we received was positive, and for several revisions we could safely say that we had a successful project. Of particular note were the reports from the beta testers in which they claimed to get the feeling that someone was in the room with them 
or that they were getting tingling or hot and cold sensations in parts of their body where the nodes were not attached. The room where the chair and the interface were located was kept clear, aside from the player, as often as possible. The team was separated from the room by a one-way mirror. It would have been able to see if anyone was in the room apart from the player, and in nine out of ten cases when this was reported, there was no one, the other one-tenth, were a technician that was coming in to check the interface. There were times when we would disable and re-enable certain audio and sensory simulations to further test which ones gave more stimuli than others. During one playthrough, the player might have cold spots, and then during the next, those would be disabled. We never told the players which ones were activated and which were not. The strangest cases came when someone playing the game for the first time would report a cue when it was clearly disabled. In one particular case, a middle-aged woman reported her hair being tugged gently. I can tell you that right now. That had not been programmed into the game at that point in time. It was an odd occurrence, but one that could have easily been chalked up to imagination. Actually, we assume that most of the cases like this were due to the power of suggestion. We just cautioned the rest of the beta testers not to talk about what they went through so that people coming in could get as an authentic experience as possible. As tends to happen in these situations, people started spreading rumors. Some of my favorite rumors were the ones that made the Sistelian staff out to be cultists who were secretly sacrificing the beta testers to the demon portrayed in the game. I have no idea how that one held up as long as it did, since there were absolutely no reports of injuries on or off-site, and every single one of the testers came out of the building alive. The internet and gossip do strange things to people, I guess. However, rumors like that were starting to give Sistelian a bad reputation. We decided it was time to bring in the media to defeat some of these rumors. We hadn't wanted to have reporters before for fear that other gaming companies would try to copy our methods, but now seemed like a good time as any. We got several offers and wound up taking one from a popular gaming magazine. The reporting team came in and interviewed us about the games and the 4D techniques used. We used the opportunity to show them around the building and debunk the rumors about animal and human sacrifice. It was actually pretty funny. After the interview, the reporting team wanted to try out the game for themselves. They all had good things to say about it, and when the article was published, donations and other requests for interviews began streaming in. Andy and I said we should have let the media come in sooner for all the benefits we were getting. The more we searched Sistilian's message boards, the more we started noticing threads crop up about people who claimed they were experiencing the things in the game after they had left Sistelian and gone home. They were going through the same supernatural phenomenon in their everyday lives as they had in the game. In every claim, they said they would feel as though someone was getting very, very close to them, looking over their shoulders and breathing down their necks. I guess that was one thing about the demon in the game that we had neglected to mention. It had no sense of personal space. 
The reports eventually involved both minor and violent poltergeist activity, and people would be going through this for days afterward. The reports helped to spread the word even more, but it didn't help the persisting rumors that the testers were being possessed. The most popular thread where the reports were being archived affectionately called the demon causing these incidences, the Sistelian demon or the Sistelian specter. I like the Sistelian specter better. Then came the day when a young man, only 17 years old, we'll call him John, claimed that he wanted to file a lawsuit against us as he'd been scratching during his time playing the game. As I remember it, John had been doing fine up until when he reached the basement of the mansion and then had screamed for us to let him out. The only evidence of the scratches were a set of pictures taken after he had exited the building. The scratches shown on the pictures were deep and red, clearly not something that had been dealt by a human, maybe by a machine, but an inspection of the chair revealed no sharp parts sticking out. The lawsuit was eventually dropped, since there was no way to prove he hadn't scratched himself prior to coming in. It's not like we do a full-body examination before sitting our testers down into the chair. It was at this point we decided to stop bringing in random beta testers and test the game ourselves for the last stages of development. I was one of the first to be strapped in. They had added so much stuff to the gameplay and so many more cues that I barely recognized it from the first time I'd played. I remember going down the foyer staircase after exploring a series of darkened hallways lit by old Victorian-era lamps, feeling my palms sweat and the hairs on my back of my neck standing on end. The wind outside the mansion had been howling for the last half hour, and it sounded like someone was whistling a funeral march. I paused on the stairs to look at the windows, searching for any weird textures needing to be fixed, when I felt a tingling along my spine on my upper back, like someone was pressing his or her chest against my back. It wasn't just in the game. I could feel the press in reality. I reached up and felt only the chair. The thing that really set me off, though, was the voice that spoke my name in my ear. It was whispered and very clear, no mistaking it for the wind. I spun the camera around, though I knew there would be nothing to see. The demon had always been invisible. Now I knew why some of our testers had joked about feeling violated while playing. I just assumed Andy had played a joke on me, but he swore up and down that he didn't put any coding in the game for the demon to say the player's name. That would have been my department, not his. He just assigned skins. Still... I remained convinced that someone was just having fun with me. There wasn't even a place to input your name. Someone must have pre-recorded it. I played through the rest of the area and then headed home to file my report. It was another late night. I had been pulling the late shift for a couple of weeks as our deadline was growing closer. We had been having decent weather until about 2 a.m. when the wind picked up and the rain was coming down in buckets. Andy and I had come from the Midwest and were used to bipolar weather. I just worked on and paid it no mind. Until the power went out, anyway. I grabbed my flashlight, feeling all the anxiety for my time in the game returning. 
This was a different story, though, and I knew that. My house wasn't haunted, and I had never believed in ghosts for my entire life. My brain said it was just ridiculous, but my pounding heart told a different story. I couldn't help but feel every draft and hear every creak of the floorboards as I went down to the generator, which, of course, was in the cellar. The wooden steps led me down into the darkness, and I have to admit that by the time I reached the concrete, I was considering just going back upstairs and burying myself into my bed. I forced myself to cross the floor to the generator and turn it on. Immediately, the backup lights flickered on, casting a red hue over the dusty shelves and rusty tools in the workbench. So, now I got to be in hell, too. The way back wasn't nearly as bad as the way down, and I reminded myself that everything I had experienced in the game had just been that. In the game. There was nothing to worry about. The demon, the Cistellian Spectre, or whatever, was an enemy made out of ones and zeros. It couldn't do anything to me. I was halfway up the stairs, about at the same point I'd been in the game, when I'd heard my name, actually, when I distinctly felt someone tightly grab my wrists, as in squeezing like my wrists were being juiced tight. I screamed and dropped the flashlight, which went off on impact. There was no one there, but I still slapped it where I imagined the hand had come from and clambered up the stairs. I didn't stop until I was out the front door and in my driveway, getting drenched and not caring. I whipped out my cell phone and punched in Andy's number. He said he knew how I felt. During his test play, though, he'd accidentally backed his character into a fire since he had been so busy keeping an eye on the rest of the room. We had all laughed at the mistake, but he hadn't mentioned the fact that after we had taken him out of the game, he'd felt a burning in his lower calf. Later, when he looked at his leg after getting home, he discovered he had a first-degree burn right where his character had touched the fire. I drove to his house and looked at his leg myself. He'd already spread ointment on the area and bandaged it up, but when he pulled it back, I was staring at a red and swollen burn wound. Out of morbid curiosity, I called the other members of our team who had tested the game that day. It was the same story all around. In the game, Jill had stood in front of a window that had shattered and then cut her hands while picking up the jagged pieces of a ceramic vase that suddenly had fallen to the floor. Matthew's character had been crushed by a falling bookshelf, and then, when he'd been getting into his car, his door had closed when he wasn't ready and three fingers had been broken. I looked at my wrists again, where dark purplish bruises were forming. These couldn't be coincidences anymore. I didn't know what was going on, but it wasn't just a game anymore. The next day was a holiday, so everyone at Cistellian was off. I invited anyone willing to go back to the game room to try and play through the game one more time. Andy and I had gone through the possibilities. The point of the entire game had been for the character to go into the mansion to exorcise the demon. They could do it by collecting special candles, then lighting them in a circle in the attic in the mansion. After some other steps were done, the demons would be forced out of the house, and everything would go back to normal. It had been a crazy night, and at any other time, I thought we would have been crazy for discussing these things. 
We thought that maybe by completing the game, and by extension the ritual, we could stop whatever the hell was going on. After all, no one, to this day, had ever finished the game from beginning to end. The game was as complete as it was ever going to be. Andy volunteered to play, for which I was grateful. Maybe it was cowardly, but I didn't want to be the one to go in. The room was frigidly cold as we attached the nodes. We threw a blanket over Andy to make sure he didn't freeze. The rest of us, five in total, not including Matthew, who'd gone to the hospital to treat his hand, gathered behind the one-way glass to watch. It was eerie, watching his progress through the game. I knew all of those corridors so well, having labored over their game files for months. Yet now, everything looked new, now that I was sure that I knew what the game was capable of. I watched Andy's heart rate rise and fall on my monitor. His skin temperature analyzers went haywire as he rounded every corner. As was supposed to happen, he felt the demon close in when his fear spiked. But this time around, its interactions were low-key, almost subdued. I fought against my suspicion that it was just biding its time. The demon was made of ones and zeros. Numbers can't hurt anyone. I thought this even as I rubbed my bruised wrists. It took four hours for Andy to make it all the way through. He didn't even take a bathroom break. He just wanted to get this done as much as we did. He crept through the halls, doing his best to keep calm despite the advances of the demon. He collected the six candles needed for the ritual and made his way up to the attic. Then things started happening that were definitely not in the programming. The paintings and potted plants in the game began shaking and flying off the walls, clearly aimed for his character. In the safety of the monitoring room, two filing cabinets overturned before sliding across the floor and knocking down two staff members. Wires attached to the wall disconnected and sprayed sparks around the room. Grabbing a fire extinguisher, I prepared to extinguish any flames that cropped up. Andy had placed the candles in the floor of the attic, and was using an old lighter to light them. He was able to get the fourth candle lit before he suddenly bucked in his chair, screaming for us to stop the game. When we rushed in, I saw his hands flailing, as though he was trying to tear off the nodes and sensors glued to his body. Maybe that was part of it, but when I got a closer look, I realized he was fighting with something invisible that was holding him down in the chair. His shirt and face had been slashed and blood dribbled from the wounds. I was afraid I was going to break his arm since I was pulling so hard to get him off the chair. Finally, we got him free and out of the room, slamming the door behind us. Andy's character had already died and the game over screen mocked us as we scrambled to call an ambulance. I didn't sleep for the rest of the day and the following night as I waited in the hospital. Andy's wounds were worse than we thought. There was a massive amount of internal bleeding that we hadn't known about. The doctors tried to stem the blood loss with transfusions, but their efforts were for nothing. Andy passed away early in the morning. A week later, I saw a new special about the death and its connection to the game and Sistelian. I couldn't blame whoever had blabbed, the police blamed Andy's death on the system malfunctioning, as though that could explain the scratches and the internal trauma. 
Our supervisors didn't care. They ordered the project to be shut down, and I was grateful. I never wanted to see that game again. The only way I was ever going back to the Cistellian building was if that room was demolished and the chair dismantled. Though, to be honest, I wouldn't have been surprised if anyone who tried to take it apart was attacked as well. I left the company when the announcement was made that the game would be discontinued. People on the forums expressed everything from disappointment to relief. The game was over. For weeks, I couldn't stop glancing over my shoulder. I moved away from the town and the memories I had of Andy. My co-workers held a farewell party for me, despite the fact that they probably had the right to blame me for everything. They said that I had helped make a game that would never be forgotten by anyone who played it. That was all well and good, but I was desperate to forget and spend the rest of my life trying to do so. I was always keeping two eyes on the shadows and jumping at every little creek. There was this little fear that I would hear my name whispered in my ear again, which would mean that whatever I had created had followed me and I never wanted to think about that possibility. The only thing I could do was try to sleep and ignore the times when I felt an invisible, clammy hand stroke my face. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I hope you enjoyed the Cistellian Spectre by the Who Tax, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got another terrifying tale for you from an anonymous author that just goes to show that curiosity 
may kill more than a cat. If you go sticking your nose in abandoned buildings, whatever you do, don't touch anything. Before we begin, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Purple. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Purple is a sleep products company 20 years in the making, dedicated to giving you the best night's sleep of your life, and that's a good thing, because I often have a hard time falling asleep at night. And if I ever manage to get some shut-eye in the first place, it's just as much a challenge to stay asleep. My work depends on me being productive, and that I sound confident and knowledgeable. And attitude is everything when you've got to sound your best. And for me, to be at that level, I need a good night's sleep. I suspect, also, it's the same for you. More often than not, however, I wake up feeling stiff in the morning, or with a pain in my neck and back. And if any of you out there are like me, you sometimes wake up hot and sweaty. And if you've been in my position, spending time living in the American South, or anywhere where it gets humid for that matter, don't even get me started on how unbearable that can be. But of course, all of that was before I got a purple mattress, and let me tell you, this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable, and I'd go so far as to say it's life-changing. Not only does it stay nice and cool at night, it's different than anything I've ever felt before. And I never wake up in pain. I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had, and at least for me, that's a big deal. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a purple mattress. The founders of Purple are two brothers who have been developing cushioning technology for 30 years on things like medical beds and wheelchairs. In 2016, they finally decided to use their patented comfort technology to create Purple, the world's most scientific mattress. The result of their life's work was a mattress so different from everything else on the market, there's practically no comparison. For one thing, the Purple mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced, because it uses this brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It was not like the memory foam I'm used to. Secondly, the purple material feels very unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity look feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple is so confident you'll get the best sleep of your life on their mattress that they're offering you the opportunity to try their mattress risk-free for 100 nights. That's plenty of time to feel the purple difference. And if, by the end of those 100 days, you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. That's right, they'll give you your money back. Not only that, but Purple's mattresses are backed by a 10-year warranty, and they offer free shipping and returns. Not to mention, free in-home setup and old mattress removal. And I can tell you from experience, not all sleep product companies will go the extra mile when it comes to disposal. And have you ever tried getting rid of an old mattress before? That is not fun at all, and not something I ever want to do again. <laughs> You're going to love purple. And right now, 
my listeners will get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text TOLD to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text TOLD to 84888. That's T-O-L-D to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. That text message and number let the kind folks at Purple know that Otis and the team at Scary Stories Told in the Dark sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving Purple a try this month. Now that we've shared with you the secret of getting a good night's sleep, allow me to contribute to that sort of insomnia no mattress can fix with another scintillating tale. Our second story today comes to us from an anonymous author and might just leave you hearing things. You've been warned. <laughs> Without further ado, I present to you Ico Dumare. Part One I hear voices. They're all around me. I wish I could go back in time and tell myself to never play that damn game. They say I'm crazy, and maybe I am. Maybe whatever it is that haunts me took my sanity and hid it away. Somewhere where it's possible to find it. Somewhere dark and sinister. Maybe they buried it deep down into the core of the earth and it's just sitting down there waiting to be found. I sound crazy, don't I? You think I'm crazy, and it's okay, because I think I am as well. I'm going to share this story, and I'm going to share it as much as possible. I don't care if you believe me. All I ask from you is, read the story and don't make the same mistake I made. I'm sure you've heard of true hauntings, such as the haunting of Connecticut and Amityville, and maybe you've seen the movie The Conjuring that was based on true events. You've never heard of this one. Those hauntings cannot compare to what I've witnessed. Nothing can. It was in 2005 when I came across some old abandoned apartment building. I had just finished my first semester of my senior year of college and was walking alone to my dorm from the bar. I was always alone have many friends other than Jake and his brother Joel, my roommates, but they were always busy doing something else with their girlfriends and I was always alone, hoping that a bottle of whiskey would solve my problems. When I came across the old building, I heard this creepy and demonic melody playing from inside. It sounded like a music box and it was echoing somehow. I had this strange urge to go inside and find out where it was coming from. I threw my bottle of whiskey, and it broke against the curb. I walked inside the abandoned building, something I would never do if I was sober. My footsteps echoed throughout the building as I walked the halls. Most of the windows were boarded, and dust filled the air, clinging onto every object that existed. I could actually taste the dust as it broke into my mouth and into my throat, causing me to cough. I moved at a leisurely pace, Dust spiraled up into clouds as I wandered the halls, searching for wherever the music was coming from. 
I know it sounds stupid, but I was being drawn to the sound. It had some weird effect on me. I walked into a room, and the music had stopped. The room was just like the rest of the building. Old, dusty, and dark. I used the light from my cell phone to examine the old paintings that hung on the walls. I noticed how weird it was that most of the rooms had furniture left in it. It looked as if whoever were living there just got up and left, leaving behind everything. As I searched the room, I had this overwhelming sense that somebody or something was watching me. I felt like if I were to turn around, something would be there. I turned around, but I didn't see anything, but I still had a sense that something was there. Something was watching me. Then I heard the creepy melody echo from beneath the floor, and I had to find out where it was coming from. I don't know why, it just seemed like I was being forced to the sound, like I had no choice in the matter. The melody was coming from underneath a dusty rug. I pulled up the rug, dust scattered in the air like a dust storm. I felt the floor lightly shaking, and it made a sound similar to a heartbeat. It sounds crazy, but it was almost as if the floor had a pulse. There was a door on the floor that opened up, leading to some storage area. It was a deep hole, around 12 feet, which is why there was a ladder made from rope. I climbed down the rope, another thing I wouldn't do if I was sober. There wasn't much in there, just some old books, a box, and a creepy ventriloquist doll with long black hair and big round dark eyes. I noticed the strange melody was coming from the box picked up the box and started to climb the rope. I couldn't help but fear that something would grab me and pull me back down. I made it back up and I placed the game on the floor, shining light over it with my phone. It looked like a briefcase, but it was made of what seemed like black stone with some strange word, Ikodomari, carved into the center. I brushed the dust off with my hand and I opened it. I noticed it wasn't a box or a briefcase, it was a board game. The structure of the board game was similar to the game of life, but it had a cemetery theme, and in the center of the board, it had what appeared to be a human heart inside a glass dome. I'd never seen anything like that before. It had six game pieces that took on the shape of tombstones, and were made of real stone. On the right side, it had a deck of red cards, and on the left were black cards. I noticed there were small writing carved on the inside of the game. If you dare to play, beware of demons. I figured it was all just for scare, and so I did something I wish I hadn't done. I was just curious, lonely, drunk, and curious. There was a wheel at the bottom right corner of the game that had numbers ranging from zero to nine, and the objective was to spin the wheel and move your game piece to the amount of whatever number you spun. I placed the game piece to the starting point and I spun the wheel. I watched as it spun around and around until eventually it stopped at four. I was going to move my piece up four spots when suddenly... It began to move on its own. One, two, three, 
for? And then it stopped. A frozen fear for a few seconds. Normal people would have probably ran off by then, but for some strange reason. I just kept on playing, assuming there was a logical explanation for it. I've always been that way. I've always lived by what my father told me. Believe in nothing you hear, and only half of what you see. Apparently, when I spun a four, I landed on a black space. According to the game, black spaces meant you had to draw a black card. Black cards were more like tips or secrets. They weren't always bad. I picked up a black card from the deck, and the words were in Japanese. But at the bottom of the cards, in smaller letters, they were translated into English. I looked at the card and read it aloud. Keep an eye on the doll. I looked over at the hole in the floor and I stood to my feet. I slowly walked toward it, lightly shaking. My teeth were grinding against each other as I got closer. I leaned over the hole and I felt my heart knocked on my chest, begging to come out. There was no doll. She was just... gone. I quickly left the building and ran to my dorm room, which was just five minutes away. My roommates were all there with their girlfriends, sitting on the couch when I burst through the door, suffocating in sweat and fear. I told them about what had happened without leaving out a single detail. They didn't believe me, of course. I'm not really sure if I expected them to, but I sure did hope they would. They called me crazy, said I had way too much to drink, and they helped me to bed. I hope they were right. I'd rather be crazy than to know that what had just happened was real. Almost a week went by, and I'd forgotten all about it. I figured maybe it was nothing after all, and I made a bigger deal out of it than I needed to. I stopped drinking, believing that it would never cure my loneliness. It was almost a whole entire week since the incident, and I thought I wouldn't have to worry about ever going back to that old building. I thought that my troubles were over, but I found out that they weren't even close to over. They were only just beginning. Something strange happened to me. Something only explainable in a Twilight Zone episode, or a Stephen King book. I was in school, as usual, walking down the hall to my class. It was strange because I was the only one in the halls, and the lights were dim and flickering. I heard a whisper as it echoed from behind me. Iko Damari. I didn't know what that meant at the time. I had no idea what was going on or why it was happening until I heard the music. It was that same haunting melody, and it echoed through the halls. I started walking faster, scampering down the hall, but it seemed like I was just walking in circles. Everywhere I went, no matter how fast I walked, I was going nowhere. I kept walking until I saw somebody or something at the end of the hall. I couldn't really see who it was because I was too far away, but it looked like a woman. She was in a white dress, and her head was tilted at an unusual angle. Eco de Mai. She said more than once in a very unsettling tone that echoed through the halls. She had a Japanese accent, and I thought I was dreaming, but I was very much awake. She continued to whisper, 
Come back, Gordon. We're waiting for you. I felt like I was stuck in a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. She kept talking to me. I had no idea how she knew my name. Gordon. I see you, Gordon. Come back. The most creepy part about her voice was the somewhat happy tone and the way it echoed. I turned to my left and noticed I found my classroom. I walked inside. Everybody was looking at me like I was crazy. I guess they saw the fear in my eyes. I looked out into the halls, and everything was normal as if nothing ever happened. My teacher scolded me for being late, and I took my seat. I was clearly the only one who was experiencing that nightmare, so I didn't want to bring it up because I know that meant everyone else would say I'm crazy and that I'm losing my damn mind. They wouldn't have been wrong anyway. I waited until I got back to the dorm room to bring it up with my roommates. They again thought I was crazy. There was no help at all. I've heard the haunting melody every night while in bed and every morning while in school. Something was haunting me, and I know that this sounds crazy, but it was the board game. I didn't know if I was cursed, possessed, or what, but it was haunting me, and it was driving me to the brink of losing my sanity. It was nothing but that melody for the whole entire week, until one day something strange happened. I was alone in my dorm room, the other guys, we're out on dates like every Friday night. I heard the melody as it squeezed through the cracking of my window. It echoed off the trees and right down to my soul. I then heard a knock at the door and it startled me because it was a knock that I'd never heard before. Every one of my roommates had a certain knock, but that knock was more like a pound and every time I heard it, I felt my heart pounding along with it. I slowly walked to the front door and took a deep breath before opening. My father used to tell me to count to three if I were ever scared, and then fight the fear with all I've got. I took another deep breath, continued knocking, and I slowly began counting. One, two, one more deep breath, three. I opened the door. There was nobody in sight. I looked at the floor, and there was an envelope. I picked it up and examined it. There was no name or anything. I opened it. My heart was knocking as I pulled out a black card. Ico de Mare was written on one side, and on the other, We're waiting for you. They were haunting me, probably watching my every move for the past two weeks. They wanted me to finish the game, and they weren't going to stop until I did. It was as if I ran into a dead end I couldn't back out of. I kept the card in the sweaty palm of my left hand. I waited impatiently and desperately for my roommates to arrive, and they were just as annoyed as I was when they heard me talking about the melody again. I told them about the knocking. I told them about how the game was haunting me, and the only way to get it to stop was to finish what it started. I guess showing them the black card was proof enough, because I was able to get them to agree to go back to the apartment with me. 
They said the only reason they were doing it was to get me to shut up about it, but deep down inside, I know they were doing it because they knew that something strange was going on. We gathered some flashlights and headed out to the old apartments. Joel brought his girlfriend, Kenzie, along with us. I don't think they all knew exactly what they were getting into. I didn't even really know. The only thing I knew was that I had to finish the game, or it would probably haunt me for the rest of my pathetic life. When we arrived at the building, I had this strange feeling that something was watching us as we ambled our way inside. They followed me to the room, jokingly calling out to the ghosts that I believe resided there on the way. I was startled by the appearance of the doll sitting against the wall next to the old furnace. Her cheeks, if I weren't imagining this, were smiling at me as I walked by. The game was just where I had left it and had started playing that creepy melody when I picked it up and placed it on the table. I was surprised to find that they were hearing it along with me. That was when I knew I wasn't going crazy. I wasn't the only one. In a way, it was a huge weight taken off my shoulder. Ikotomare? What's that supposed to mean, anyway? Kenzie asked, looking at the carved writing on the board. She looked at me, expecting an answer. I had no idea what it meant, and I still don't, but it can't be anything good. We all took a seat at the table, and all eyes were pretty much on me. I flicked the wheel, and it spun, landing on a six. We all watched my game piece, but it wasn't moving. Not like it did last time. I spun again, landing on four. Still nothing. I tried moving the piece manually, but it was stuck to the board. It was like trying to pull a nail from a wall with your bare hands. I figured there must have been a reason for this, so I read the rules that were all written at the bottom left corner of the board. I wish I had read them before I played. The rules were very horrifying, and they pretty much went like this. Welcome to the game of Ikodomare. For your safety, it is highly recommended that you read the rules before you play the game. If you place a game piece on the board and you spin the wheel, there is no going back. You hit a dead end and there's no way around it but to finish the game. The game will not end until there's one person left alive. Otherwise, it can never end. Note. This game is designed for more than one player, so if you are alone, do not start the game. Consequences will be dire. Note, the game pieces tend to move on their own, so there is no need to move them manually. Not that you could, anyway. Warning, to whomever dares to play the game, be aware that there can only be one winner, and that winner shall win the ultimate prize that sits in the center of the board. To those who fail along the way, rest in peace. Warning. Cheating is not tolerated and will result in dire consequences and an automatic ejection. When I found out that the game meant everything that was said, the rules made it seem like this game was a death wish. I still, to this day, wish I had read the rules first. 
wouldn't be here right now, surrounded by demons if I had. Everyone else, I guess, thought it was just a game. They had no idea how real the situation was. Since I apparently already took my turn, Jake volunteered to go next. He placed the game piece at the starting point and spun the wheel. He rolled a seven, and his piece slowly moved up seven places, landing on a light shade of gray, which, by the way, meant you didn't have to draw a card. Joel went next, and he spun a five, landing on a gray spot. Finally, it was Kenzie's turn. She placed her tombstone on the board and spun the wheel. Four. I knew instantly that would be a black spot, because I had spun that the first time. Her piece moved up four spaces, and she drew a black card from the deck. I took a deep breath, probably more scared than she was. When I saw her reaction, I saw the fear crawl within her. Look out behind you, she read out loud. We all took our flashlights and pointed them behind her. What the hell is that thing? Joel asked, not really expecting an answer. Wasn't that thing over there? Jake asked, looking at me, pointing to the furnace. It was the doll. She somehow moved from the furnace to the rocking chair that sat behind Kenzie, without anyone noticing. She was just sitting there, the chair rocking lightly back and forth. At that point, I'm sure everyone realized how serious and real the situation was. I heard their heartbeats echo throughout the room. They were just as scared as I was. I agreed to switch seats with Kenzie, who of course wasn't very comfortable, with a creepy doll sitting on a rocking chair behind her. Not that I was uncomfortable with it either. We got back to the game, trying to ignore the creaking of the rocking chair. It was my turn. I spun the wheel and landed on seven. My piece moved slowly. I counted the spaces before it could stop. It landed on gray. Jake was next. He spun the wheel and landed on five. His piece slowly moved and stopped directly in front of mine. Shit, he muttered. He landed on a black spot, so he pulled out a black card out of the deck and read it aloud. It's okay to be afraid, because you should be. We were indeed afraid, and yet we were just getting started. The worst had yet to come. I took a deep breath, hoping nothing would viciously pop out at us. It was Joel's turn, so he spun the wheel and landed on four. A gray space. Kenzie spun the wheel and landed on zero. Her piece did not move, and it stayed put on a black spot. According to the rules, that would still result in drawing a black card. She pulled a card from the deck, took a deep breath, and read it aloud. She's under the floor. We were all silent, and we listened as a voice echoed through. It's dark down here. The voice was echoing from beneath the floor. I can't sleep, Gordon. They all looked at me as if I knew what was going on. This woman, or thing, was haunting me. We heard a knock from under the floor, right beneath us. The air was so cold, and we actually felt a presence run through us. 
It was a horrifying experience, but we knew we had to continue the game. It was my turn, and I quickly spun the wheel, and thankfully, my tombstone moved to a gray space. It was Jake's turn next. He spun the wheel, landing on a nine. His game piece moved up nine spaces, and it stopped on red. We hadn't had a red space, so we had no idea what would happen next. All that we knew was that the red cards were considered dead ends and were unpredictable and possibly dangerous. We didn't know at the time how deadly they'd be. Jake took a red card from the deck. We all took a deep breath as he began to read it. A knock will rumble the room. Open the door or be doomed. We all looked at each other, our faces frozen in fear. Then came the knock. It was loud, more like a pound, similar to the knocking that took place earlier that day in our dorm. It did rumble the room, and it echoed right through us, our hearts becoming vulnerable and frail. Open the door or be doomed, I said, looking at Jake. Sorry, man, but you have to open the door. He looked up at me, and I saw the fear leaking from his eyes. His face was pale as he took a deep breath and stood up. We watched as he slowly walked to the door. I realized nobody had shut the door yet. Somehow, it was closed without anyone noticing. I had an overwhelming sense that something bad was about to happen. The room rumbled again as there was another loud knock. Jake finally reached the door after what seemed like an eternity, and he looked back at us. The longer he took, the more frightening the situation seemed. I couldn't blame him, though. There was no telling what could have been behind that door. It could have been something demonic, something sinister. He took another deep breath as he slowly opened the door. I listened to the sound as it creaked open, and I swear, everything was in slow motion. Part 2 the doll stood motionless in front of the door, waiting to be invited inside, as the light from Jake's flashlight shined upon its dusty wooden face. It's that damn creepy doll, he yelled, quickly walking back to the table. I really didn't understand how the doll was standing without anyone holding it up. Most or all ventriloquist dolls required someone to hold it up, but this doll stood on its feet with no problem. Maybe somebody was holding it up, someone or something we couldn't see. I believe the doll was alive somehow. Either that or someone or something was moving it from place to place without any of us noticing. Joel was up next, so he spun the wheel. His game piece moved five pieces to another gray space. Kenzie spun the wheel and her game piece also moved to a gray space. It was then my turn, so I spun the wheel. We just wanted to get the game over with, so we were getting through quickly. We barely even talked to each other. I spun an eight, and my game piece moved slowly until it stopped on a red space. I looked around at everyone. They all looked frightened, except for Joel, who I guess still had the mentality that it was all just a game. I pulled a red card from the deck and took a deep breath before reading it. Don't be scared. We've just begun. 
The doors are now locked and there's nowhere to run. Creepy riddles. I don't the fact that they rhymed was very, very unsettling to me. We all looked at each other, stuck in fear for what seemed like an eternity. We heard footsteps echoing through the halls. It sounded as if someone were running relentlessly around the building. What the hell's going on? Jake asked, looking at me. Everyone looked at me as if I knew the answer. I had no idea what was going on. The only thing I knew was that we were in deep trouble. Jake suddenly got up and scampered outside the room and down the hall. We all followed him out, and I tried to convince him that we couldn't leave the game until it was finished. It was frightening to find out that even if we wanted to leave, there was no way we could. The doors were locked, and the windows were boarded. We were stuck. There was no way out. The only way was to finish the game. While Jake and Joel furiously wandered the building in search of a way out, I was right behind them trying to get them to understand that we had to finish the game or we'd never get out. Things were starting to get out of control. Jake and Joel were arguing, and it got to the point where I had to yell for them to shut the hell up. We have to finish the damn game, I explained. That damn game is cursed, and there's no way I'm playing it, Jake said. They were finally understanding how serious and real the game was. The melody started echoing through the halls, it was calling for us. It took me a while to get everyone to understand that if we do not finish the game, we'd die either way. It was a frightening situation we were in, but finishing the game was the only way out. We all walked back to the room and back to the game. I noticed the doll sitting back in a rocking chair. I don't think anyone else noticed. We took our seats, didn't say anything at all, as we finally continued the game. One thing about this game is that it can literally drive you to go insane. That was happening to all of us. Since I'd used a red card, that locked the doors. It was Jake's turn. He spun the wheel and landed on a gray spot. Joel was next, and he spun the wheel. His game piece moved five pieces, landing on black. He drew a black card from the deck, and it read... Don't be afraid, but there's someone on the furnace. The only thing I liked about the black cards was they didn't rhyme. We flashed our flashlights at the furnace that sat at the other end of the room, and what we saw will give you nightmares even if you aren't asleep. Her face was insidious. She was just sitting there on the furnace, tapping it with her fingers. Her eyes were dark. You couldn't see anything inside them but the evil. Her skin was pale and rotten. You could actually smell her. There was blood lightly dripping from her mouth, and it seemed as if her jaw was broken, because it hung unnaturally low as her neck tilted to an angle that no neck should ever be, unless it was broken. She had a rope hanging from her neck and she wore a white gown. I swear she was looking at me. I couldn't really tell because her eyes were dark, but I know she was looking at me. She still does. Every time I close my eyes, I see her. Her dreadful face and vile smell oh, probably haunt me the rest of my life. We continued the game trying to ignore the smell. 
the tapping on the furnace, and the fact that something sinister was just behind us. Kenzie was next, and she spun the wheel, ending up on a gray space. I was next, and also ended up on gray. Jake spun the wheel, and we watched restlessly as it stopped on red. We were so worried about what would happen next that we didn't notice the tapping and smell was no longer lingering, and that whatever that thing was was no longer there. Jake took a red card from the deck, and I could tell how scared he was by the emptiness in his eyes and how slow he was moving. We were all scared about what would happen next. She sits in the dark and feeds on fear. Don't be afraid, or she'll appear. Everything was silent. You could have heard the sound of our hearts beating against our chests if you were there. They were beating and begging for the fear to go away. And no matter how many times I counted to three, the fear was like a never-ending curse upon us. Our flashlights started flickering until they went out completely. The room was black and I was convinced that we were already dead and in hell. We heard the sound of heavy breathing and it most definitely wasn't any of us. It was something more demonic and haunting. We heard the tapping against the furnace and the music started playing from the game, the creepy melody that echoed through the room. We felt a pulse, and that pulse was coming from the heart that sat ghastly at the center of the board game. After a minute, everything became silent again, but it was still completely dark. We sat in silence for about fifteen seconds, before the hopeless screaming of Jake echoed throughout the room and out into the hall. The door slammed shut, and we were stuck helpless in the room, listening to the screaming of Jake as it faded out into the halls. Something dragged him away. Joel pounded on the door as he yelled for his brother, but there was nothing else we could do but continue the game. I tried to convince both Joel and Kenzie that Jake was probably fine, even though I knew very well that he wasn't. I just wanted to finish the game. We sat back down, saddened by the empty seat at the table. I didn't know if anyone else was seeing what I was seeing, because they said nothing about it, but I saw that thing again, that woman sitting on the furnace, tapping away. I ignored her and we continued the game, still traumatized by what had just happened. To make matters even worse, Jake's game piece, his tombstone, moved suddenly to the bottom right of the board, where other tombstones resided. He was officially out of the game. Joel was next. He spun the wheel and barely missed the red one by one space. Kenzie spun and her tombstone stopped on gray. I then spun the wheel and my tombstone moved six spaces to black. Black cards no longer scared me compared to the haunting red ones. They were harmless. I took a card from the deck and it read, my voice becoming frail, she's watching you. Flashed my flashlight around the room, not really sure what I was going to see. I saw the doll sitting against the wall of the bedroom door. She was looking right at me. Her evil stare pierced into my mind as a memory. I ignored her, turned back to the game, and we continued. 
Joel was next. He spun the wheel and landed on six. We watched as his tombstone stopped at a red space. He took his time before drawing a red card from the deck. They're calling from the graveyard gates. You've disturbed the dead. Lock the doors and stay away. There's something you will dread. We looked around at each other, confused and worried. We heard the footsteps and moaning, echoing from the halls. The smell of their rotten skin could be smelled from miles away. They were coming toward us, their footsteps and moaning getting louder as they got closer. The door was opening when Joel and I slammed it shut just before they were coming in. We moved the refrigerator over to the door to keep them from breaking through, and it worked out well. They were moaning, growling, and hungry for flesh. There had to be at least ten of them. I wasn't exactly sure what they were, but they were clearly something possessed, and something dead. After a while, the moaning and pounding at the door had stopped, and I guess whatever those things were, they were just entering the graveyard and laying back into their dreadful graves. Kenzie spun the wheel after everything had calmed down, and we were finally able to breathe. Her game piece moved to a gray space. I spun the wheel afterward, meaning a gray space as well. Joel was next, and he spun the wheel, just missing red by one space. Kenzie spun the wheel, and her tombstone moved eight spaces, and stopped just in front of Joel's. She landed on red. We looked at each other the dead silence adding to the suspense as she took a red card from the deck. She read it slowly. Her hands were noticeably shaking as she held the card in her hand. She waits behind the bedroom door. Under the sheets, she walks the floor. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Joel asked as if anyone actually knew the answer. The bedroom door creaked open, shining my flashlight. I saw a hand reach out of the door, and it made a gesture that was basically saying, Come here. What happened next, I really didn't understand. It was as if Kenzie was possessed or something, because she got out of her chair and slowly walked over toward the door. I saw the emptiness in her eyes. It was like she had no soul, like she was a walking corpse. What the hell are you doing, Kenzie? Joel asked, worriedly. Get the hell back here, Mackenzie. He stood from his chair and tried to stop her, but it was too late. She was pulled inside and the door slammed shut. It was silent, other than the sound of Joel pounding on the door. We couldn't hear a sound coming from the room. We managed to get the door open a few minutes later. We were hearing a creaking sound, and that sound was coming from a rope that was wrapped around Kenzie's neck and hung from the ceiling. She rocked slowly back and forth, and her jaw hung low, in an unnatural position as if it was broken. Joel pulled her down and tried to revive her, but there was nothing, not even a trained doctor could do. She was dead. He was oblivious to the breathing sound that echoed through the room. There was something in there with us, something sinister, the room wasn't completely dark. We were able to see without our flashlights due to the moon that shined vividly outside the window. It wasn't boarded. We couldn't see anyone, but we heard it, breathing. The smell was unbearable, and 
it wasn't coming from Kenzie's corpse. It was coming from the thing that suddenly walked out of the closet and sat at the side of the bed. Joel and I just stood there in fear as she turned her head toward us, our minds, traumatized by her deadly dark eyes. She was tapping against the nightstand next to the bed, and she had some dusty sheets that were once white wrapped around her shoulders. I realized that it was that same woman or thing that sat on the furnace. She just stared at us. The room was silent in the most horrifying way. The only thing we could hear was her heavy breathing. She whispered, her fingers pressed to her lips. I love this song. The music from the game was playing. She got out of the bed and danced around the room. The terrible smell followed behind her. Her voice was probably the most creepy part of it all. It was her creepy tone and the way it echoed. I turned over to Joel, trying to understand why he hadn't left the room yet. Let's get the hell out of here, Joel, I said. He stood up off the floor and looked at me. My brother's out there somewhere, he said, wiping the tears from his eyes. I have to find him. He seemed unfazed by the creepy dancing woman in the room. He scampered out of the room and I helped him move the refrigerator from the door before we walked out into the hall. Jake! His screaming echoed through the halls, probably waking anything that lived within him. We searched through some of the rooms for about twenty minutes before that creepy melody from the game started playing again. I knew it was just a matter of time. He thought it was a good idea that we split up, and that's what we did. He searched the fourth floor while I searched the third. I was searching through a room when my flashlight started flickering before it turned off. I heard footsteps, first believing that they were mine, until I stood still and the footsteps continued. It was dark, the windows were boarded, blocking out any light from outside. Somebody else was in there with me, and I know it wasn't Joel, because I heard his calls for his brother echoing through the hall. The door slammed shut, and I felt a cool breeze run through me. Jake, I whispered, you in here? Everything was silent. The only thing I heard was Joel yelling. Then I heard a voice, but it wasn't very clear. He's dead. It was a deep, dark, and sinister tone. I couldn't see anything or anybody, but I felt them. I felt their presence. I was lightly tapping my flashlight, trying to get it to work. I closed my eyes, and I started counting to three. I was slightly shaking, and every part of me, it seemed, had a pulse. One. Two. I took a deep breath. Three. The flashlight finally turned on and it flashed directly at some old dusty mirror. I saw her standing behind me. I felt a cold breath as it dissolved into my skin. I ran out of the room literally as fast as I could. I was surprised my heart didn't jump out of my chest because it sure did feel like it would. I walked back down to the first floor of the game. When I stepped into the room, I noticed someone standing over by the window. It was Joel. He was just standing there in a fixed position, completely immobile. Joel? I walked toward him slowly. You okay, man? He turned around slowly. His face was so pale. 
and he had bags under his eyes as if he hadn't slept in days. I wondered if I looked like that. Did you find anything? He asked, finally dropping back to earth. I thought about the devilish woman I saw. No, sorry. He sat back down at the table. I had a feeling that he didn't care what happened next. Like he didn't care to die. He didn't seem scared or worried. He was just... I don't know. Two seats were now empty as we continued the game. Kenzie's tombstone, I noticed, had moved to the bottom right of the board next to Jake's. I spun the wheel and landed on two. That kept me on gray. Joel spun the wheel and was forced to draw a black card. He took a card from the deck and it read, She's watching you. He wiped the tears from his eyes with his shirt and looked over at the bedroom door where Kenzie's body lay still. It's her, he said, crying. It's Mackenzie. I turned around, but I didn't see her. Either he was losing his mind or she was actually there. I wouldn't be surprised if she was. I spun the wheel and landed on the same space as Joel. That meant I had to draw a black card. I took a card from the deck and read it. There's somebody at the door. A loud knock echoed through the room as Joel and I froze in fear. Joel and I stayed put as the knocking continued until the door suddenly creaked open. We heard the footsteps, but we didn't see anybody. Joel spun the wheel, desperate to end the game. He was safe from the black and red cards as his tombstone stopped on gray. I spun the wheel, also safe from the cards. As Joel spun the next wheel, I saw Jake. He was sitting on the furnace, tapping away. His jaw hung low as if it was broken, and his eyes were dark, but I knew he was looking at me. Joel had his back turned so he couldn't see him, and I guess he couldn't hear the tapping. He was completely oblivious to Jake's presence. I pretended like I didn't see anything, and eventually the tapping stopped and he disappeared. Joel and I continued to land on Gray until eventually Joel was forced to draw a red card. This is it, isn't it? He said to me, his voice becoming weak. I didn't say anything. I wasn't really sure what to say. He took a deep breath and read the card. Under the floor you must peek. There's something there beneath your feet. I remembered the hole in the floor where I first found the board game. I showed Joel to the door and he lifted it up. We flashed our flashlights inside to see what was under. What we saw can unfortunately never be unseen. Joel immediately looked away in distraught when he saw what was down there. It was Jake. His corpse was already being infested with flies and maggots as it lay down there against the wall. There was no blood, but it was clear that his neck was snapped and his jaw was broken because they were each in unnatural positions. Joel just stood there, his back turned from the ditch. He wasn't crying or showing any kind of emotion. He just looked empty and exhausted. I sensed that something was going to happen, and it did. Something down there grabbed Joel by his ankle and tried to pull him down. I tried to help him, but there was nothing I could do. The game wanted him, and they got him. 
They pulled him under, and the door slammed shut. I was all alone. The melody started playing from the game, and I walked over to it, not knowing what to do next. My game piece started moving to the center of the board, and it stopped directly at the heart. The heart started beating. It had a pulse. The music got louder and louder. It was piercing through my head until suddenly it stopped. My game piece moved all the way back to the beginning where I first started. That was it. The game was over. I left the building without ever looking back. I didn't want to go back to my dorm room where I would be alone, so I walked to the grocery store that was just a couple minutes away and I cried to everyone there that my friends were all dead. I know they all thought I was crazy, but they called the police, and the bodies of my friends were found later that night. I told them the story. I told them everything that had happened, but they never believed me. The game was never found, but I know it was somewhere in that building, somewhere either within the walls or under the floors, haunted by the demons within. I can hear the melody playing right now as I sit alone in my room, surrounded by white walls and cameras. They're watching me. I can hear them. I can feel them, and I can see them. That game is somewhere in this world, and I pity the poor soul who finds it. I learn to live with the haunting melody that echoes wherever I go. I sometimes put on my dancing slippers, and I dance to the melody. I dance around and around and around. I dance to the sound of fear, because... It's the only sound I hear. I hope you enjoyed Eco Damare by one very talented anonymous author, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me tonight for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the horror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase a season's pass for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs, or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates, new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Purple, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a listener, you'll get a free Purple Pillow with the purchase of a mattress if you order now. 
That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text TOLD to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text TOLD to 84888. That's T-O-L-D to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. Nick can. <laughs>
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.